You know, I know Netflix is just filled with bullshit propaganda. Propagandi. And I, I haven't had it for many years. I don't say that with any pride. I don't, I don't say that the same way people say, I don't even own a TV. I used to be what people would say, I don't even own a TV. You can kind of get that way with these new things now. But, I mean, I, I, it's obvious to me Netflix has been filled with just bullshit propaganda for years. Of the exact kind you'd expect. But uh, through a friend's account, I've watched a few things. And a couple of them were just true crime. It's kind of hard to... It's hard to fuck that up. But somehow they do. That's not what I was going to talk about here. And not... like In, in that example, it's like I... I'd followed that East Area Rapist original Night Stalker case very closely many years ago. Then the guy got caught, and not a lot not a lot of new information has come out. I mean, big information, the fact that this was, this was a real guy, and we now know who he was and some basic biographical info. But it's not one of those cases where a ton of detailed uh, new information has come out. So I watched that uh, the, the Netflix documentary they did on that. It was really poorly done. It was almost entirely dedicated to Michelle McNamara, who wrote a book about it before she died. She, I think she was almost done with it, and then she finished it. I, you know, she, she did shed a lot of light on the case. She wrote an L.A. magazine, I think it is. I think it's called L.A. Magazine. Uh, if it's not L.A. Magazine, it's a L.A. Magazine. But she wrote a great article for that when I was first getting interested in the case. And she did devote a lot to it. There's no, t- there's no taking anything away from her. But she was also Patton Oswalt's wife. And so a big chunk of the documentary was just about her. Which, it was, the documentary was named after her book. So it's not like it misled me. But it was really disjointed. It just basically shared things that are already well known about the um, about the case and the investigation, the most well known stuff. And then, you know, easily half of it was about her. Like it would go from some brief thing about the case to just talking about her life and her marriage and all this stuff. And you know, it's obvious. It's obvious who that audience is. That audience isn't men. And the true crime audience is largely female at this point, so it's very much for women who want to like hear about a relationship and this woman's cool Nancy Drew life. Um, but it was a little disappointing because I was like, this is the only big budget documentary I'm aware of that has come out about the case since it happened. And it turns out I just want to know new stuff about the case. I want to get an inside view into the investigation. I don't know how much of that's even available or who, or how many of the people involved in the case are willing to do interviews and stuff in depth. But still, I was just a little disappointed. I was like, oh, I thought, I know this was named after her book. I knew it was going to be partially about her. But the how disjointed it was and how much of it was just about her did, I don't know, it was disappointing. No propaganda in that, though. No propaganda. No propaganda in that. But I did watch a documentary last night. There was about it was called like the rise and fall of Abercrombie and Fitch, which honestly is right up my alley. You know, I've said before, there's something about that era. That's when I was just becoming a teen, 
Abercrombie and Fitch became insanely popular, a true phenomenon right around the time that I hit my teens. And so anything from that era, anything that accurately documents that era, I'm interested in. I don't care about teen movies. I don't care about fiction. Like I don't, I don't rewatch teen movies from when I was a teenager and be like, oh, that's exactly how it was. I like to see the real thing. And uh, I mean, it's what I've said before about Columbine. <laughs> Talking about Columbine, no, it's it's one of the reasons why I, I revisit Columbine because I'm just like this. This so accurately depicts the world that I was in at that time. When you look into that case, it's like who those kids were, what they were into, how they dressed, everything. Like, not just the, the killers, but everybody involved. The victims, just random kids. Some RK random kids. You know, the whole thing. But it, it's the same way, like, I was like, oh, a documentary about Abercrombie. This is going to put me in that mindset. And, you know, I, I didn't really like the way it was made to begin with. But it was at least talking about the phenomenon, and it, it, it truly was, because even I had a few things. There was a little phase in my life when I was around, I don't know, probably late 13, early 14, where I, I bought a few shirts. I think I had a coat. I had a hat. The main thing was the hat. I had this Abercrombie and Fitch hat that was kind of an off-yellow kind of a dark because their their whole aesthetic was interesting because it, it was kind of they, they did a lot of distressed stuff but not in a grunge way like in this sort of like oh this is high quality material with some wear that was the look they were going for high quality material with some wear and uh, it, they were obviously going for this kind of preppy east coast frat boy image. I mean, that was what a lot of their marketing used. Kind of old money was their vibe. Old money for new people. I think sums up the Abercrombie aesthetic. But the hat I had, it was that sort of muted color. There was a lot of stuff like that where their stuff was very colorful, but it was it was sort of, yeah, these sort of like muted, like if it was a color like yellow, they, it would be very muted. And uh, that's what my hat looked like. I think it had, a, yeah, it had a little like distressed area along the bill. If you bought a hat from Abercrombie and Fitch, it was going to have like along the bill, it was going to look a little distressed, a little upset, a little tattered. I mean, I, I was just posing. I, I don't even know what I was doing. I mean, you think about yourself at that age. Because, I mean, what I was doing before that was just some, like, young skateboarder look. But, you know, that was equally false. Like, when I look back at, like, wearing skateboarder stuff, yeah, I was into it at the time when I was, like, 12 years old. But it wasn't like that was any more me. Any more me. So, like, just, I went through a brief phase where I was like, oh, I'll wear some Abercrombie. It's what people are wearing. I'm sure I did just want to fit in. I don't know. I, I honestly didn't think about it that much. I think I just I saw it and I was just like, oh, that's a look. That's kind of a look these days. I never got a hemp necklace or any of that shit. I did have a puka shell necklace. I don't. It's not that I'm any better. I did have a a, a very tight puka shell necklace and a, a silver chain. I like the silver chain. 
I don't know what I was doing with puka shells around my neck, choking me. It was like a choker. I would wear a puka shell necklace and a silver chain at the same time. Probably always. I don't think I ever wore them separately on their own. Maybe the chain. No, I wore the chain on its own sometimes. But I wore the chain and the uh, puka shells together. But, I. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I guess I was just doing it to fit in because it really was a look. Like everybody, was, you know, truly everybody at school was wearing it, M male or female. It was kind of a status symbol. It was because it was nice. It was it was in the expensive range. But you know, stuff that was also popular at the time was like Polo Sport and Tommy Hilfiger. Tommy Hilfiger. Tommy Hilfiger. That stuff was very popular too, but anybody could wear it. Like someone's mom would be wearing Tommy Hilfiger the same day her kid would, and it it appealed to everybody. But Tommy Hilfiger, or, uh, Tommy Hilfiger, uh, Abercrombie and Fitch was different though, because it was like it was part of all that, but it it was only for teens. Like you didn't see adults wearing Abercrombie and Fitch anything. It was just something that teens wore. The brand had no appeal. They didn't even try to market it to anybody else. But anyway, watching this documentary, like it started out, they were just kind of talking about the phenomenon. And even though I'm like, who the fuck are these people? I'm, you know, it's still interesting to me. I'm interested just in, in something that takes off. Like, why was it so big? And, I, and I'm not exaggerating at all. Like, anybody who was around then could tell you, like, it was, it was so massively popular and it was such a status symbol. Like, if you went to the mall, you would just see people, like, people would go to Abercrombie and Fitch and buy something small, something cheap, just to be able to walk around the mall with that bag. Girls would, it talks about people doing this in the movie, but I remember the girls doing it in school where they, they used the bag as a, a book wrap. They would take the shopping bag, because you had to, it, it, that was a weird thing they made us do in school. They really emphasized it. You had to like fold this paper around the book to preserve it. I mean, it was obviously to preserve the edges and everything, but it was this big thing. Like the first day of class every semester, they would hand out like free, these free things the school gave you to wrap your book in. And if you turned them inside out, you could, it was just white paper that you could draw on, which is what I did. But the other side, the printed side was, I don't know, like maybe like, like educational produced material that was trying to be cool, but it was always really dorky. But the girls would just wrap their books in their Abercrombie bags. What we call wrapping the books in the Abercrombie bags. Wrapping the books in the Abercrombie bags. And so watching this though, it, it was like, they, they kind of touched on that stuff, which I'm like, oh yeah, you know, at least they're talking about it. But about halfway through, and it was a full documentary, but about halfway through, they started talking about racial discrimination. Because the whole thing was like, the owner said at one point, and the one of the reasons I'm fascinated by Abercrombie is the owner. This fucked up old gayman. I first saw a photo of him many years ago, 15 or 20 years ago, and it was him sitting on a bench or sitting on sitting on bleachers. That's more the Abercrombie aesthetic. Sitting on bleachers 
in distressed jeans, using a lot of that word distressed, they're wearing distressed jeans with flip-flop sandals, a polo shirt, and bleached hair. But it was weird because like he had the like aside from you could you could see like some aged aged skin around his ankles. Like you could you could see you could see that he had old man skin around his ankles and everything, but he was buff. So he essentially was like making himself look like one of the Abercrombie models, bleached tips, all that, but with this like big bloated Andy Rooney looking head. It's like an old man bleached his hair and got in really good shape, but he couldn't change his face or his head. His head specifically is really fucked up. It's just big. And, uh, you know, it was a typical story. Like, of course, the guy who runs Abercrombie is like a weird mutant version of the models he uses. But I was always fascinated by him because, you know, he's one of those OCD eccentric millionaires, billion, billion billionaires. But this documentary, like, it just immediately went into this, like, racial discrimination angle, because what I was going to say is, like, that the CEO once said, like, he's like, Abercrombie's for the attractive crowd. It's for the cool kids with a lot of friends, which, of course, it is. You know, even if it's not, like, kids, all kinds of kids wore it. But of course, that's the whole idea. That's why it was popular. Why it was popular is it seemed exclusive and elite. It wasn't, but it seemed that way. It had that air. And uh, what was I going to say? You know, so he made that statement and it was controversial. And it's like, oh, he just said the thing that you already knew. Like you knew the whole, you know, marketing agenda behind the company was exactly that. This is for the cool kids with a lot of friends who are attractive. And that's a lot of the kids that were into it, you know? There were kids like me, like fat boys, who wore a little bit of it too for a time. But when I think back about my school, like the kids who were really wearing it all the time and representing it, it was hot girls, hot rich girls, and, you know, athletes, cool guys. So, who cares that the owner says that's who it's for? Obviously, that's who it's for. And it's also for the kids who want to feel that way, or they think by wearing that, they'll be closer to that. But apparently, they had a policy, too, of like only hiring attractive people at their stores, or trying to. Like, every month, they would send a page of photos, like headshots of their employees, and the people at the head office would tell them, oh, that person's not attractive enough. And so they would just cut their hours to the point where they basically fired them. They just wouldn't work them. And I didn't know this. My friend was telling me some of the bigger stores. They didn't have this. Because I, I grew up by Bellevue Square, which is a pretty big mall. Pretty, It's mentioned in the movie Say Anything. They talk about going to Bell Square. But uh, I grew up right near that mall. And... They didn't have, that I know of, models standing out in front of the store. But my friend was telling me at the one in San Francisco, they would have shirtless dudes just standing at the entrance of the store. So, like, obviously this this whole thing is very, it's, you know, even though, they're, even though they're selling clothes, it was very much about the flesh. And it turns out, like, the CEO and the photographer were these old, creepy gay men 
who did did things did did inappropriate things no surprise there but so they had this like attractiveness quota where it's like you have to have a certain number of attractive employees that you can have on the floor at any given time and uh so they, they would the, the headquarters would send back that photo list and say like cut this person's hours, cut this person's hours, they're not attractive enough. And a number of these people ended up being minorities. So naturally they the, you know, there was a discrimination lawsuit and all this stuff. And then it just the whole second half of the documentary was talking to them. You know, talking about, they literally called Abercrombie evil at one point. Like, somebody who was being interviewed was like, they didn't invent evil. They just perpetuated it. And what's funny is it showed all the people who sued them. Not very attractive people. Yeah, they all happened to be minorites, but not very attractive either. And I don't understand why that's a problem. Because the whole documentary started going into how that's such a problem... You know, all the stuff you'd expect, all of the the key, like, social justice points and all that, all of that was hit on repeatedly the entire second half of the documentary. And they didn't, they didn't say that in the advertising. There, was, there wasn't anything in the title or description. It was just, it said it was literally about the rise and fall. And they didn't even get into the actual fall. They made it sound like the company started failing because they weren't diverse enough. That's actually what they say. Like they, that's the whole point of the second half. They don't even get into the fact that no, it, this was a phenomenon. They had an insanely high peak popularity among the most fleeting audience, which is teenagers. It's amazing that brand got as big as it did out of nowhere. But of course, it was going to fall. Of course, it was going to become uncool. Of course, the next generation of teens is not going to find it cool at all. So, yeah, it's not going to it's not going to do as well. They made it sound like that was all because of this these failings, this this racism and you know bullying. They kind of they related like the attractive attractiveness thing to bullying. And it's like, yeah, you know, grill the guy all you want for being a freak, grill him all you want for being creepy. But in terms of just, you know, running the business how the guy wanted, that's all the guy was doing. You know, it, it, it's almost like, uh, what, I, what I thought of when I was watching it is I was like, the, it's just like Hooters, except they sell clothes instead of food. I was just like, you know, that's all they're doing, you know, it's, it, they're, they're basically, it, it's basically Hooters except you sell clothes instead of food. Like, they want really attractive people to promote their brand. They're going for this sort of, like, old money East Coast vibe. Like, the athletic, popular son who was also born into a clan of success. You know, people who have just... Life is easy. Life is just going with the grain and having fun. So, you know... That was their choice. They didn't need to promote it any other way than what they did. And that's why it was successful, too. One of the reasons it was successful was because they successfully marketed that vibe. That vibe. And, uh... What was I going to say about that? Um, 
I don't know, it would be interesting like for them to really examine like when exactly, because I remember people starting to really talk shit about it soon after it was popular. I mean, you'd completely expect that. But right when it was at peak popularity, I also remember the backlash. It became the, the clothing brand people would reference when they mocked popular people or jocks or, or just people who kind of went along with the program. Like, I, I remember stupid little things people would say. And this is like 1998 or 99. This is, this is pretty early on when it was at its peak popularity. But people would say things at school like, I remember a girl calling it, uh, I think, Abercrappie and Bitch. She goes, everybody just wears Abercrappie and Bitch. And uh, so that was already starting. There was already this backlash starting. But then I don't remember thinking about it by the time I was in high school. Because that was when I was in junior high. And junior high was like 98 through uh, 2001, maybe. And I started high school at the end of 2001. By the time I was in high school, I don't remember people talking about it. Kids still wore it, but it wasn't really a focus. Maybe that was just getting a little older. Maybe in high school there was less focus on brands. It seems like there wouldn't be. I do think it was it was lessening in popularity at that point, though. And then I, I graduated high school, what, like 2004? And I don't remember it ever coming up. It seems like it was already on the way down. I don't know what their sales look like from that era. But it, it, seems, like, it, it seems like the bubble was starting to pop or get smaller. And so I would be genuinely fascinating in like if this documentary had gone into why that happened. It would be great to know, like, did it happen around that time? Did they just drop down to like normal company? Like, did they, did they kind of, did their sales start to look like a normal company's sales instead of this massively inflated freak phenomenon? They didn't even talk about that. They made it sound like this was all because of these you know, discriminatory practices at Abercrombie, which like, I, I remember hearing about that stuff. And they launched into it too by starting, because there had been some t-shirts that they made. And I do remember this controversy, but they had made some t-shirts that make like ethnic puns, not slurs. But, you know, the famous one was a... And I don't even remember seeing a single person wear these to school. It was just known that, that they sold them. But one of them, it was a, like a fake advertisement for a cleaning company run by like the Wong brothers. And it said like two Wongs can make it white. Just a pun. Is it kind of, you know, does, does it, if you're sensitive to those things, would you think about it for a second? Sure. But it's not something that really mattered. It wasn't something that was mean-spirited. And I do remember, like, that was protested. I do remember that some people protested the stores. There were other ones that were, like, Mexican puns. Puns involving the name Juan. They were just these hokey t-shirts. I don't even think they were that popular. I don't know. But that was the only time I remember really anything coming up. But then I found it in like the 2010s, which is like way after the fact. I mean, the company was just way, way past its peak in the 2010s. And I guess that's when a bunch of shit happened. Like some woman who was working for them was told like, you can't wear a hijab, hijab. 
around your head. You can't you can't wear a Muslim neck scarf is what that is. And uh, so she sued them and successfully sued them for discriminations. But they made it sound like that was all relevant to its downfall or its loss of popularity, which is an interesting line of logic that these progressive maniacs use. It's a few years ago, my friend had written an article, a guy I used, I used to work with. He also freelances and he, he writes articles. They're like, he's like an old school humorist. He's funny. He dabbled in stand-up, but he, uh, yeah, we worked together, one of my favorite people I've ever worked with, and, you know, he was also, like, a humorist. Like, you can kind of tell, like, the world that shaped him and, you know, the world that influenced him, because he, he would write articles just about culture and society, but add, like, a, an old-school kind of humorist spin. But he'd written an article about some of the censorship and just policing, it's now just the norm now, but this is a few years ago. It was the norm then, but it was at least it was at least a little. It wasn't talked about quite as much, and I shared it online. I just said, you know, I wanted to support my friend for one, for thinking good thoughts and being funny, but also I agreed with it. You know, I also agreed with the point of it. And this woman that I used to hang out with here, who was always, you know, crazy about that shit, always out of her mind about all that stuff, she was, she was like, oh, it mentions Louis C.K. And she's like, Louis C.K. didn't get canceled. So this would have been around that time. She's like, Louis C.K. didn't, didn't get canceled. She's like, the audience just decided he, what, that old edgelords weren't funny anymore. And I was like, oh, so you're Adam Smith all of a sudden. The market decided. The free hand of the market decided that the most popular comedian didn't deserve support. And I, I didn't say that to her. That would have been a little... Uh, I wanted to engage her. At that point, I, I still, I still kind of had hope that you could engage about those subjects respectfully. And so I was just like, well, that's, that's not true. Because she actually mentioned this, this, you would think that this was a parody. You would think that I was making this up. But she actually said, like, the reason why people are more interested in Hannah Gatsby now is because they don't think an old edgelord is funny. And I was like, do you even think those are the same audiences? I mean, for one, it's funny that, like, how many libs that I've, I knew loved Louis C.K. They loved him. You go over to their house and be like, dude, have you seen the new Louis C.K.? you seen the new Louis C.K.? It's not like that happened every day, but still, I, I remember that happening. And then, obviously, he had some sleazy allegations against him. But people turned on him. But still, like, even that said, even though, like, even though kind of, like, I mean, there's that word edgy, but the, the edgier side of libs, which, like, some of them used to be. Some of them still are, I guess, but... You know, they, they're not the same kind of people who would think Hannah Gatsby is funny or worth their time at all. And so th this woman that I used to hang out with being like, oh, you know, people just decided that someone like Hannah Gatsby is funnier than this old misogynistic edgelord. And it's like, do you really think that's the same audience? Do you think there's one comedy audience that just as a whole ch goes from one comedian to the next? Like as if all these people who loved Louis C.K. and thought he was funny... 
we're suddenly like, yeah, we're kind of sick of his style of humor. I think we're going to go, we're going to pay to watch Hannah Gatsby. I'm sure there's crossover. I'm sure there's a little bit of crossover between their fan bases. They're both very well known. But it was funny to see that, that sort of mindset of, oh, oh, like the audience, the market decided he didn't deserve a platform anymore. I mean, one, it's a lie. It's completely dishonest. And I, I called her on that much. You know, I said to her, I was like, you act like that's just one audience who, who was into her or was into him and now they're into her. And they just all decided at once they weren't going to be a fan of him anymore and they were instead going to put their money toward Hannah Gatsby. But what made me think of it is just, just that idea. Instead of saying, no, there's been a, a movement against this person, even if you agree with it, like even if you think a guy who, you know, takes like young female comedians into an office and has influence over their career, like even if you think it's a scumbag move to be like, can I jack off in front of you, which is what he did, I think it's a scumbag move. I think it's sleazy. Maybe there is something criminal. I don't really know. I don't, I don't, it's not, I'm not in a position. I'm not even in a position to really know what's going on there. But it's totally fine to, to just to take a position and say, not only is he a sleaze bag, he deserves no support. That's fine. That's a fine position to take. What's dishonest, though, is to act like a movement wasn't behind that and to say it was just the market making the decision, which is just a lie. This Abercrombie thing was the exact same thing. They made it sound like Abercrombie's racism and, you know, prejudice led to their downfall. When, if anything, when Abercrombie was at its most controversial and, like, in your face with, like, naked white bodies on the walls, at its most exclusive, preppy, that was when it was at its most popular. And I don't even think you would be able to say any one thing caused it to be less popular. There's no reason to think there's any one thing. It was something that teenagers were really into. It's like trying to say like a band. It's, it's like trying to say a one-hit wonder who teenagers grow up and they forget about it. But it's like trying to say a one-hit wonder was no longer successful for some for X, Y, or Z, when it's just, no, it's something that appealed to young people who have fleeting taste and don't really care about things. You know, it, it, it's a situation like that. It's no different. So trying to say that it was like one thing or the market was responding to racism or prejudice, it's just bullshit. And they didn't even go into any of the details. They truly, I'm not even exaggerating, they talked about how it was this phenomenon, and then halfway through, they started on the, the racial discrimination angle, the bullying of preferring attractive people. And they just never let up. It never got deeper. It never examined, like, what the company was like. Because I was like, oh, shit, like, I, I'm, I'm going to watch this documentary and not just get a taste of the nostalgia that I experienced when this was at its peak popularity. I'm also going to watch this documentary and learn what the fuck happened to the company when I stopped paying attention in 2002 or 2003. No, none of that. Abercrombie was evil. 
because they were racially discriminatory. They kept saying like, oh, they, they had this all-American image, but they didn't want any non-white people in it. And then what happens? And then now, Abercrombie's now like tried to rebrand itself as socially progressive, and they make statements. Nobody, nobody's going to give a fuck about it. Teenagers aren't suddenly going to like it now. But it's funny, like, it, why it reminded me of that woman I know who was going on about Louis C.K. is that people who are part of that mindset, people who are dogmatic about that, they spin it as if it's the market deciding. They spin it as if something isn't forcing it. Or when something is just a natural process, like Abercrombie becoming less popular and not making the sales they used to make, they spin that as if there's there's a motivating factor. But they, they totally snuck it in there by surprise. And you know what? I wouldn't have cared if they brushed on this stuff. Like there was a group of former Abercrombie employees who sued the company for racial discrimination. There were a bunch of Asians who protested Abercrombie because of these t-shirts, these joke t-shirts. That happened, and they should have mentioned it. They should have asked people their opinions on it. And that's what I thought they were doing. Like, when they introduced that stuff into the documentary, I didn't, I didn't immediately react like this and go, oh my God, oh, it's another one of these Netflix propagandies. It's a Netflix propaganda. I, I didn't react that way at all. You know, I, I sort of braced myself because that's what I do. But I didn't, like, write it off. I didn't, I was just like, oh yeah, this stuff happened. It's worth mentioning. But when they just never let go of it for the remaining, I don't know, it went, it went on for like 40 more minutes of this. Of this. I was like, oh shit. Now it's a Netflix propaganda. That's how I reacted. Because I was like, oh, it would have been totally natural to touch on this stuff and then get into act what actually happened to the company. Because the whole thing was like, oh, Mike Jeffries got let go as CEO. Oh, in 2014, he was making this many billion billion, and the company was losing money. It was all his... And that was the thing, too, that was funny. This guy was the visionary. I remember, like, hearing about Abercrombie when I was a little kid, and it was just like this old man outdoorsman wear. And that's what it was. But I specifically remember it because this friend of mine in elementary school... He, he came to school and he was like, he was wearing this Abercrombie shirt. It was like a collared shirt, striped. And it wasn't in the style that became very popular later. The sort of look they were doing when they were really big. It was just sort of like a basic guy's t-shirt. And I remember being like, what's that? And he was just like, oh, it's this. And then I found out, yeah, it was, it was kind of like this old outdoorsman sort of company. And so this guy, like, he rebranded it, and it, it turned into his weird, perverted, older, closeted gaming vision. But he, he really did, I mean, that really did push it. Like, it was, it was 100% his vision that made it what it was. And uh, so, like, the documentary is like, oh, he was, he was, in 2014, he was making a billion billion as CEO. And, uh... You know, the company was losing money. It was clearly his fault. Well, what do you expect? Like, the guy's making a billion billion because he's what made it worth that much. And then he was still at the top when it started to lose money because it was inevitably going to. 
So there, there's not, there's no narrative in that. But everything has to have a villain. And, you know, he refused to participate in the documentary for good reason, because it was just a smear. And the guy deserves to be smeared a little bit. He, he deserves to be mocked a little bit. The guy's fucking crazy in a bad way. But it would be nice if they made the documentary at least a little bit objective and didn't try to make him out to be the epitome of evil because he preferred to have athletic young white people be the spokespeople of his company. If they had made it objective, I would be genuinely interested in this freak's mind. This guy's got to have an interesting perspective. Because they were saying, because they got into this whole thing about like things he would make people do. Like I know there was a story. I don't. I don't know that they mentioned it in the documentary. But he had a private plane, of course. And at one point, like he he fired the guy who he he fired the pilot because he wasn't young enough. And he used to have like written rules about like which underwear the staff on the plane had to wear. And this is the one that was funny. They mentioned it in the documentary, and I just thought it was funny. They, they made it sound like it, it was a, a crime against nature, but they were like, oh, on his private plane, there was a rule that like, when, the, when the guests, when the, when the rich people riding the plane ate hot food, the crew could only eat cold food. And when the, when the guests ate cold food... The, the crew of the plane could only eat hot food. So it's like they didn't want them to be eating like the same kind of meal, which is, you know, yeah, obviously ultra. I mean, I mean, it just speaks for itself. Like, obviously, this guy's, you know, a wealthy freak with weird like it, it, it's like a writer. It's like a tour writer or something. He's got a weird writer, which a lot of these people end up having. It's like Bill Cosby, the story about Bill Cosby, where. He uh, he used to ask staff at venues to watch him eat. Like he would, the the food would be catered or whatever. So step off a curb, but uh, the food would be catered, and like he would ha he would want all the staff to gather in the back. I don't know if this is something he did more than once, but there is a, a famous story about it, where he wanted the staff to gather around and stand there. And just, <laughs> just, just watch him eat, which is really bizarre, you know. And, and like knowing what we know about him, of course, you know, it takes on an even darker undertone. But it's kind of like that, like Mike Jeffries, Abercrombie CEO, being like, "The crew eats cold food when I eat hot food. When I eat cold food, the crew eats hot food." It's just a weird thing. Like, it, it's weird that someone would even think of that. It's weird that someone would even think of that. But it's funny. But they were just, they, it would be interesting, though, if they hadn't just tried to smear him. Like, they could mention those things that were real. Again, like, why not just mention the things that are real? And then when they interviewed the individual people who filed this group discrimination lawsuit, a lot of their stories were just like, oh, I felt... Or, or they told, they told, like this one guy's like, oh, when they, when they refused to hire me, or when they fired me, they told me, oh, we already have enough Filipino people working here. And the guy's like a big, fat, ugly guy. You know, I'm sure if the guy looked like a model, it would be different. 
given they openly said they want attractive people but they were all these these like these personal stories that were just like oh well when they fired me or cut my hours i just knew i just felt it was because of this reason and you know you see people do that and you know does that happen sure but it's you know this is all based on these people's feelings it's like someone i care about you know who didn't get a promotion at work that they were really hoping to get and they framed it as if it was you know gender discrimination like they they convinced themselves that it was some sort of gender discrimination when like because they hired a guy for the position instead and came up with this whole conspiracy theory as i said before like everybody's the, their own ultimate conspiracy theory about their own life everything that happens to them they weave it into something and this person i know though it's like they you know they just will tell you that they'll be like oh yeah you know when i got discriminated against and it's like that place has women in leading roles like everybody who works there is a, is a as a total lib you know maybe there's some stuff i'm unaware of but based on how it was presented to me i just bit my tongue because i'm just like was that really what happened i'm sure that does happen I, and the thing is it's not like because you, you can easily take this extreme of oh stuff like that never happens of course it happens but like you hear like how people deduce it like how people spin it and you're just like i don't i don't see the evidence you know that it's possible to cite that as the reason so that's why you do you know that you can get away with saying that's the reason so you do that's how i felt watching this like when these people told their stories and keep in mind like the documentary made it made things as sympathetic to them as possible they presented these people in the most sympathetic possible light and even then it just kind of felt like they were saying oh this, this is my feeling or oh they told me this and we all know how that goes what did they actually say that's why i had a friend who was in trouble at work and was really upset and you know he's my friend so i have his his back but I, I asked him, I was like, well, did you do the thing that they were accusing you of? And he was like, yeah, but I did it once and, and it not a big deal. And I was like, oh, so you did do it. He was saying he'd been accused of something at work. He hadn't been fired or anything, but just he'd gotten into some trouble and he was really upset. And work's bullshit. All this stuff's bullshit. Like, it's not like I'm taking the employer's side, but I wanted to know like what was actually said. Like, what did they actually say to you, and what did you actually do in connection with that? If it's truly nothing, well, there you go. If they, if they just made it up, people do that too. But when I talked to my friend, I, I kind of laughed because I was just like, oh, okay, so you did do the thing they were accusing you of. You just didn't think it was a big deal. And it's the same thing when someone says, oh, this person said this. I mean, I've had people tell me, like, oh, I got this message from this this person I know, and they, they were, oh, man, like, they said this, this, and this. And then they'll tell me what was actually said. Like, when they actually, like, look at it and read it to me, I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound that way at all. And then, and then that's when people get into, oh, no, you don't understand. Like, if you knew him, you'd know that he meant this. And I'm like, maybe. But if we're talking about what was actually said or actually done... 
I always try to figure that out. Like, what, what was the thing that was actually said or done? And these people who were telling their story, you know, and he's like, oh, they told me they had enough Filipinas. And I'm just like, maybe that happened to him. I'm not, I'm not saying he's a liar 100%, but it's like when, they, when, you, when you share these very feeling-based stories and you're putting words in someone's mouth and you have an agenda... I would love to, I would love to be a fly on that wall. If I had a time machine, I'd go back just to hear what that guy said in that interview or in that that meeting at Abercrombie. And I'm talking about it so much cuz that's what a lot of this thing was devoted to and I was disappointed. And it was snuck in there too. That's what gets me. It was snuck in there. Not just as like a one-off. It was snuck in there as like a dominant part of the entire documentary. And so it got me. I was like, I went back afterward and I looked at the title of the documentary. I looked at the description and I was like, there's not even a single mention of this. You would have no idea what you're getting yourself into. At least with the original Night Stalker documentary, like at least that was named after the author's book. And it was implied it was going to be partially about her. So when I looked back at that, I was like, oh, I should have known that they were going to really do this lifetime movie thing about her. The Abercrombie one? No. And I'm like, how many documentaries are like this? I know a lot of Netflix plays into this shit. I know a lot of their documentaries, when they can, do this. Because the way those meetings go, you know, I've never been in one. I, I mean, I've been in my own version of them. But the way those meetings go, it's like, it's, it's the same sort of meeting where it's like, oh, why don't we get a black guy to play this character? Oh, hey, let's remake this, but have a black guy. It's the same thing with this, where it's like, oh, we're going to do a documentary about Abercrombie. Let's make it about race. Let's make it about racial discrimination. Those meetings are the same thing. They're coming from the same place. It's opportunism. It's finding a crack and ripping it open a mile wide. And I'm just disappointed because I would have loved to have seen a real breakdown, a real objective breakdown over what happened. Like, I would love to have seen more about the company culture. Because I remember an article came out like 15, 20 years ago it was about how insane the company culture was. A lot of it was about how Mike Jeffries was a freak. And he would drive his Porsche to the, the campus, to the Abercrombie and Fitch campus. And he would leave his keys in the ignition. Because it was like it was sort of like a power move. Like nobody's gonna steal my Porsche at the Abercrombie headquarters. And how he made it a point to only have attractive young men greet you. I would love to know more about that stuff. Like, there's plenty of dirt. There's plenty of weird stuff to look at. But the thing is, these people aren't interesting, and they don't know what's interesting. You know, like, like going back to that woman I knew who was like, oh, the, the audience, the market and the audience just decided they like Hannah Gatsby more than Louis C.K. Something I realized about these people is I don't know that they ever truly liked anything. I'm sure they have. But I don't, I don't know that they've really, truly invested in something that they like for their own reasons. They probably do just like whatever is presented to them. And they're, you know, they probably just, that's probably what they're into. 
It's the same thing for these lists of like the top 10 best drummers. Something very subjective. But I mentioned on here a guy I know a couple years ago was just so upset because Guitar World did like a top 10 best drummers and there were no, it was a top 10 best like classic rock drummers or rock drummers. And he was so upset that there were no black guys. And it's like, do you, have you ever genuinely liked something? Like the fact that you would even factor that in? That a, that a highly subjective best of list wouldn't think about quotas and wouldn't think about like representation. It would just come from a place of, oh, this is what I like. And then, and then to accuse people, because the thing is, within that there was an accusation. He was really upset. He made an Instagram post about it. He was like, I can't believe they left off. I can't believe they left off. And uh, within that, there's an accusation that, like, again, conspiracy. Like, there's an accusation that, oh, when they made the top 10 list of classic rock drummers, they purposely left off black people for a reason, because they hate them. That's, that's what he's implying. And there are people out there, a lot of them, who actually listen to music that way. Like, they think, like, oh, I need to listen to a certain number of black. They might not quantify it. But they do, somewhere in their mind, somewhere in their motivation is like, oh, I mean, you see people, it's, it's the black-owned business thing, it's support black artists, like, you see all that shit. And so it's like, somewhere in their motivation is something other than taste, which should be the thing that dictates all of that. But if you've never really had true taste, now that these people don't actually like things, but if your taste is always dictated like by what you're supposed to like or what you're supposed to be into, that's how you end up thinking this way. You end up thinking that entire audiences just go, oh, we're sick of the old edgelord. We're sick of the old edgelord. I would never use that term, but she used it. And then just decide to like a progressive lesbian comedy. But, you know, if you go around, like, living that way, you probably think that's how other people are. It might, I don't even think she was being deliberately dishonest. I just think you end up thinking that way. And it's what lends itself to thinking, like, oh, the reason Abercrombie fell from grace is because they were so discriminatory and prejudiced and evil. You just accept that stuff. You don't watch a documentary about that. Because I guarantee you, there's a bunch of people out there who watch this same documentary who are like, oh, yeah. Oh, dude, so true. So evil. So true and so evil. It's so true and so evil. There's people who watch it and do that. I've been in the same room as them where it's like, oh, yeah. It's the story I always tell. I've told it a million times, but I'll I'll never forget it, of my ex-girlfriend's roommate coming into the kitchen one morning and just saying, like, I just read the most interesting article about how Instagram filters are racist. And, And she was being sincere. It's like not even thinking about light and contrast and why black people might have a harder time showing up in photos for the same reason my little black dog is hard to photograph and how filters don't really help 
if the lighting in the room isn't great. Instead, it's like she read she read some BuzzFeed article. Oh, here's why Instagram articles waste, and thought that was a good talking point. She felt like you could tell that like she read that that morning, and like she walked into the kitchen like a sitcom character ready to spew it. You know, like she walked in like like she had her talking point in mind, and we were all gonna go. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's a good point. When I'm just sitting there, just dead silent, just like, are you kidding me? So uh, it's it's the same sort of person who watches this documentary I watched and is like, oh yeah, they just they just. But I have to figure deep down inside, like some you know many of these people probably see that, and like deep down inside they have like, you know, they, something has to be telling them in their gut, like what I'm watching is crap. This is manufactured. You know, I, I was misled into watching this crap. Deep down, you can't enjoy that. But if you go around thinking that way all the time, you just fall into it. The other example I always use is when I was talking to an old friend that I used to drink with, and he was recommending me this newer comic book. It was a newer comic book within the last, sometime within the last 10 years. And it sounded interesting. It was science fiction. You know, my girlfriend at the time was into that kind of stuff. I was like, oh, maybe I'll get this for her. And then he was telling me about it, and I was just like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then he he adds kind of with a pause. He goes, oh, and it's so progressive. And it was a selling point. He said that to me like that was the icing on the cake. And I just kind of like reeled a little bit. And sure enough, I ended up buying the comic book, and I read it, and... uh up to a point, like, it made sense, like, up, you know, it's about, like, two, like, it's about, like, a warring, these warring alien species, it's like a Romeo and Juliet type thing, where there's these warring alien species, and sure enough, somebody from each of the, the species falls in love, and they have a baby secretly, which is illegal in this world, in these worlds, this cosmic sci-fi comic book world, so they have a baby and like she has features of both the species and they have to hide some of them so that nobody knows and like when i when when i realized that was one of the main plots i was like oh i see what he means it's kind of progressive in the sense that it involves like love across boundaries and different species and you know prejudice and all that and I, there were little things throughout it where I kind of was like, oh, that's kind of what he was talking about. But then it reached a point where there was like a full panel page of a woman with a penis explaining to a kid why like women have penises and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, I just closed it and never read it again. It broke the fourth wall for one. Above all else, like if there was a natural way to work that into the storyline, I would have been like, okay. Because this comic wasn't for kids or anything either. If there was a way to work that into the storyline where it made sense, it's not like I'm going to put down a book because it has a she-male or something. But like, like it was a full-page panel of this, of this person standing naked in a shower. And all these like long like speech bubbles 
explaining like why this is like okay and acceptable and all this stuff and i was like this is a psa this isn't part of the story like this is just their opportunity to like throw in a psa there and i was like this is what he was talking about and this is what he liked and he saw that as a a bonus like he saw that as something that when he recommended it to me it was worth mentioning that's what it's all about you know, like the idea that this is worth mentioning. And it's, it's the girl walking into the room like a sitcom character, just dropping it, her morning conversation, her way of getting the ball rolling as she sees her roommates and me is, oh, I just read the most interesting article about how Instagram built is a racist. And you just go, man. You convince, you're around people who think that way. And when you watch a Netflix documentary with them and it just launches into this slanted, pointless, you know, smug bullshit, you nod along and you like, you tell, you, you say to your friends like, oh yeah. And so I, who knows? I mean, it makes me, I was kind of excited to have access to Netflix because I'm like, I'm sure there's things on there I like. I know there are. Of course there are. Now I'm nervous. I, I feel like it's a minefield because I already knew that it did that. Like I already knew that's a big thing they do with their their fictional shows. I, I know it's something they do in their documentaries. But based on that, like, you know, just, oh, hey, I'll watch this. Oh, hey, it's a documentary about Abercrombie and Fitch. And for it to just turn into that, for it just to turn into ash before my very eyes. Just, uh, I'm like, now I don't want to watch anything. Because you could do that about so many things. You could do that in a documentary about so many different subjects. Everything has a little crack in it that you could just expand. You could just rip it open and make it all about that. But if they'll do it to Abercrombie, they'll do it to anybody. And the result is something that's totally uninteresting. You could have made a really fascinating... This is, this, is this is me addressing the directors. You could have made a really fascinating documentary about this bizarre phenomenon and it is bizarre how popular this brand was and not just talk about the fact that it was popular like they did in the beginning but really get into it but instead they did this and the result is just nothing nothing you'd ever want to see again nothing you'd ever want to recommend to anybody i give it zero i give it zero stars Children can run free.